0: Sign up at swanprivate.com today, mention breedlove to your advisor, and get $100 in free Bitcoin when you make your first buy. Don May, welcome to the What Is Money show.
1: Thank you very much, Robert. It's good to be here.
0: By way of brief introduction, you are the director of the May Group, and you are involved in the businesses of both Chinese medicine and what I think you're really well known for, tea. Um. Maybe here's a good time to plug your YouTube channel. Because this is where I discovered you, actually. Someone sent me a video of you discussing, which we're going to talk about today, the difference between individualism and collectivism. Um, but you're doing it on your channel while having a nice tea session, which I thought was cool, too.
1: <laughs> yeah, so uh, Mayleaf is, is the tea brand uh, of uh, May Group. And we have our YouTube channel, uh, which is Mayleaf, M-E-I underscore Leaf. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a channel which primarily the purpose is tea education. So I've been involved in tea for 20 years. And when I started, I was very frustrated with the lack of information out there or lack of credible information out there. So I thought, you know, that as I learned, I would share the knowledge. So it's not about uh, master and student. It's about we're all students. We're all learning. Mm. I just want to, like, get information and pass it on to people so that it makes learning about tea uh, easier and hopefully interesting and yeah as you said we touch upon all sorts of topics the intricacies of, tea, intricacies of tea but also people involved in tea or people who love tea tend to also like to focus on some of the philosophical aspects of uh, of tea and of uh, society and of life and so um, every now and again I throw in some extra videos uh, with my musings on that.
0: Very cool do you think that is because the tea ceremony itself just kind of naturally encourages you to engage in those deeper conversations?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I could talk for hours about tea. um, Uh And, and the, but when when you draw it down, tea gives a space, tea gives you a space for uh, hopefully a a tech free space, uh, which means you're less distracted. Um, And um, so you've got that space to To entertain thoughts, but also there's a certain magic in the tea brewing process and drinking process because of its subtlety, because you need to, to, it sort of draws your attention. Mm. It sort of uh, has a really mind clearing process. It also has chemicals in it, which, which Mm -hmm. improve lateral thinking. Um, And so it sort of sends you off in different directions, gets you a bit tea drunk, gets you a bit tea high.
2: Hmm.
1: And um, and lots of the elements of tea sort of mirror things in life, sort of impermanence, the idea of uh, sort of uh, ineffable truths that you can't Hmm. quite put your finger on. Um, There's uh, something about tea, which is trying to discern quality in tea is a very difficult thing and is very subjective, yet is also um, undeniable. Mm. You know, it's something that people get, but like it's, and, and so it, it mirrors a lot of things in life and it mirrors mm. a lot of things about living and this, this sort of search, the quest for truth and understanding and all of those good things. And so, yes, it sort of generates that kind of mindset, I think.
0: That's really interesting. Um, uh, something about the ritual of it too, maybe appeals to something really deep seated in our evolutionary history that we engage with one another in, in ritualistic form um and what you said there about it being a subjective yet undeniable um i was just thinking about that recently with the beauty you know beauty is always in the eye of the beholder but there are things objective about it as well right like symmetry and these other qualities so um
1: yeah precisely there there are qualities that you can describe but there are just as many qualities that you can't describe and that's sort of the beauty of tea and uh i think why people really uh, enjoy exploring tea because it's sort of a lifetime of of that kind of exploration um, yeah. but the ritual certainly uh, plays its part in, in china they say that tea requires three things it requires leaf water and you and so mm. your involvement in it is certainly fundamental but also the relationships that it builds having mm. uh, this kind of uh, space with other people is a very uh, bonding uh, bonding uh, experience
0: yeah it's really nice honestly you're having tea here and it's enjoyable for me even though i'm not having any just engaging in the ritual Um, next time if you're in london (laughs) i have always really appreciated the i've always leaned towards green tea i'm not a big specialist so i kind of just got the basic stuff but just an unsweetened green tea and what you said where it helps your lateral thinking is tremendous it gives your brain some type of agility that i don't have on anything else i can't just drink coffee and get that Mm. um I've actually recently quit caffeine, so I haven't had any tea or coffee in a long time. Um, But maybe I'll come back to some caffeine-free tea that you recommend me.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, but also uh, it's worth remembering that uh, tea also contains theanine, which is synergistic with caffeine. And so it sort of modulates Mm. the effects. And and so you get a very different um, uh, psychoactive effect with uh, tea but it is interesting how it move, how it how it changes the way that you think hence why i need i need some today and <laughs> uh, and uh, and interesting the sort of demographics of the people who are our main clients tend to be people who are involved in in things like programming you know that kind of uh, um enterprise that requires lateral thinking to make their decision making uh to try and find lateral ways to make their the processes more efficient
0: Uh right right yeah so yeah. Um- Interdisciplinary type work or multiple domains you can draw helps you draw connections laterally. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. very cool. Yeah. Well, so as I mentioned earlier, um, just again for the audience, I discovered your work through this video that was recommended to me. And I think the title is Individual versus Collective, which is better for humanity. And this was a, a Chinese New Year presentation that you did. It's like a 30 minute video, just you. Um, you having tea and talking about the differences between individualism and collectivism. Um, And I think it's a very impressive piece of content. So we'll link it to the show notes here for people to check out. Um, But I was, you know, this piqued my interest because clearly this is a dichotomy we talk about a lot as well on this show. Um, So I thought it would be a useful discussion for you and I just to sit down and work our way through some of these topics for the audience. Right. Right. I think you kind of started with collectivism in your video, but I'm going to go individual, then collectivism. Okay. And we'll just see which way it goes here. So, you know, as you open the video, you describe individualism as something that's, I don't know what we call this, a philosophy, I guess, really focused on the supremacy of individual freedom, the intrinsic worth of the individual. Um, And this is something... A philosophy, I guess, it's traditionally contained within schools of thought like libertarianism or anarchism, even free market capitalism in its purest sense.
1: In its purest although, sense, yeah.
0: Although we don't really have that anywhere, just kind of a, a theory, it would be uh, based on individualism as well. So maybe we could just start there. Could I just get your, I'll go ahead and ruin the video for people too, but you know, we both lean individual, I guess. <laughs> So how, do you, how have you established that worldview for yourself that's centered on individualism above collectivism?
1: Uh, well, I think first and foremost, uh, it's in a way the idea of versus is probably a little bit mm. misleading. So we Fair. can sort of talk about that later. But because I, I think that the, the, the idea is that the individual is the sort of a priori truth collective mm-hmm. of collectives it, it, it's the it's it re- the collective is defined by the individual yeah. uh, so the individual by definition comes first the individual is the the supreme moral unit mm-hmm. in my opinion yes well I, I like that,
0: i like that term by the way moral unit i've called it the the individual is the elementary particle of society but moral units even better
1: um and you could probably move a layer beneath individuals and and look at nature so you could sort of you know you could you could stagger it and we can sort of talk about that later but if we talk about the individual well first and foremost the individual is the creator of all of all reality in the sense of what we can talk about quantum theory and the idea (laughs) of you know you know the, the the observer being a creator of reality but even if we put that to one side I mean essentially we are living in a in a sort of gray soup of information. Right. Uh, you know, and we are, uh, receiving that information and we are creating experience, you know, through mm-hmm. our senses. Um, and so for, in, in its most basic form, all of our experience of reality comes from the individual,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and comes from, you know, uh, our interpretation of this, of this data through our senses. Um, then once you've established that, you can also say that, you know, any action or any, any planning of any sort mm-hmm. is done by an individual. It's never done by a collective. You don't plan as a collective. It's you plan as an individual. You act as an individual. Decisions are made by individuals. Um, the consequences of those decisions uh, impact the individual. They never mm. impact the collective. Um, so. If you just strip it all down, the individual has to be the supreme unit.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and also, if you look at um, the idea of knowledge mm-hmm. and the the, the learning, uh, the gaining of knowledge, the, the, the storing of, of knowledge or the uh, narratives that we create to disseminate knowledge or wisdom mm-hmm. through generations, that is again, all done by the self it's never done by a collective Mm -hmm. Uh, and so for all of these reasons uh, i i think that that the individual is the primary unit um, and uh is the predecessor of uh collectives or it it is that it is the individual that defines the collective
0: Mm -hmm. yeah it's really well said um and it somewhat intuitive I think when you put it that way that of course the individual is the only one that actually has senses right we are relating to reality through our senses that a a collective doesn't have senses right there's no it's just this useful fiction that individuals have narrativized or written to as you said to help disseminate knowledge Um, I would also add in there just to help coordinate people right it's we we use useful fictions all the time to help coordinate and communicate. Language itself is a useful fiction, right? What's the old Taoist saying that the the moon and the finger that points at it are not the same thing, right? Words are just pointers to meaning. So we're like we're immersed in this. I think you called it the gray soup of information. I would say a lot of that information is contained in these useful fictions. But there's this danger where we start to mistake the representation for reality itself. And that's where you leave individualism and go into something like collectivism, where, you know, the nation, do it for the fatherland or the motherland or for your company or whatever, whatever imagined structure we put together. And we start to uh, ascribe it human like qualities right? That it can think and act and plan. That's where the disconnect occurs. So, and to your great point, obviously in physical reality, only individuals are bounded and distinct. They're using means to pursue ends. They're making decisions. They're engaging with reality. So what, what is that Danger Is this something like a tribal instinct, perhaps, that we start to confuse our representations of reality with reality itself? Or, because it seems like we've fallen down this trap many times throughout human history.
1: Yeah, I I, I think that the formation of collectives in a way is, is a natural process. Mm. I, I think that we need to step back a little bit and, and also say that the individual... We, what we don't want to, what I don't want to say is that the individual is some sort of isolated, distinct entity. Right. Right. Of course, the individual is relational. Yes. Right. Uh, we're related to nature. We're related to our environment. Mm-hmm. Everything about our environment affects us as mm-hmm. we affect it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's always going to be relations happening. Right. Um, and you could also sort of... um talk about ideas of extended mind theory where your Mm -hmm. phone is part of yourself or you know or you could sort of um uh talk about well you can always talk about the interconnected nature of things but from a pragmatic point of view i think that you can say that the individual is concrete you know you Mm -hmm. can look at buddhist ideas of the individual you know and it's sort of ephemeral nature but I think from a pragmatic point of view in this discussion, we can talk about the individual as connected, but relations are very, very important. Mm-hmm. And so naturally we form relations. And one of the things that, you know, uh, I often hear is uh, that the Eastern way of living is a more collective way of living, you know, versus the, the, the Western way. But I think it's sort of confused. Obviously there's lots of different things we could talk about. There's mm. a big difference between Confucianism and communism, for example, right? right? So Confucianism talks about relationships, the the supremacy of relationships over the individual. But that I think is different from the supremacy of collectives over individual. Like the idea that your relationship with your family or the the groups around you are are very important um, is, I think, um, I I would agree with that. That's a natural way to go. Now, eventually you are gonna need to cooperate. Uh-huh. Right? Um, and that cooperation means you're going to get groups of people. And with that cooperation, you're going to need to create some sort of shared purpose,
0: mm-hmm. right?
1: Some sort mm-hmm. of shared
0: shared values, yeah.
1: values. exactly. Yeah. So you look at the, the, the value of the collective in terms of its function, or you look at the value, the values of the collective in terms of its sort of uh, moral compass, if, if you mm. like, right? And so these are all natural tendencies. So this is why I, I think it's misleading to say individual versus collective, even though mm-hmm. that's why it is a nice YouTube mm-hmm. title. The idea is that the individual is the primary unit. It will naturally form collectives. Mm-hmm. The problem is the corruption that happens in the formation of collectives if uh, they are not um, governed properly. Mm -hmm. Uh, governed is probably not the right word but baked into the formation of the collective needs to be uh, some sort of method of anti-corruption right (laughs)
2: Uh,
1: and uh, you know we see this in terms of democracy and you know ideals of of how we can sort of we can try to instill anti-corruption and obviously you know bitcoin is the is is the, the 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 very unique uh, situation where that it literally is baked in right and, and, is, and it can't be taken away which is why it's so magical and so and such a beautiful thing mm. um but uh yeah so i think there's a natural tendency to form collectives but i think that if you follow that natural tendency there should be a natural tendency for the splintering of those collectives right in other words they should they should you should form, you should create cooperate, corporate cooperative groups for a, a, um, a sort of aim, but those aims will always be shifting. Right. So you've got, to, you've got to keep your radar up, right? Because the purpose of a collective is very hard to define yes. and will often get um, steered by individuals that can lead it to places where you, you've got essentially a group that's working on behalf of individuals rather than uh, genuine collective good. Um, and so, so essentially what I think needs to happen is you need to have the right kind of startup for these collectives, but that is a very difficult thing to do, right? Um, because inevitably the collectives sort of take a life of their own and herds start to develop and tribes start to form. Um, and you start to get all of the classical uh, fallout from that mm-hmm. uh, mentality, uh, exclusionism, um, dogma, mm-hmm. and lots of other things that we can talk about in terms of you know when we sort of uh, critique you know the the uh, the, the problems with collectives. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's a natural tendency that we do form collectives to achieve aims. The problem is that we should not be protecting those collectives. We should be protecting the individual. And I think that that's where we've got our, uh, we've got uh, our wires crossed a little bit.
0: Yeah, and you mean specifically when you say protecting collectives, I assume that means the political apparatus protecting collectives, is that what you mean?
1: It it could be, um, but it it doesn't have to be. It could could even be on a smaller level than that. The point is that when you have collectives uh, there is a tendency for people to want to ring fence power.
2: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Right. So, the idea being that the, the people who exert the most influence on the collective get used to exerting that influence and right. they don't want it to end. Yes. Right. Um, and then that influence inevitably becomes a bit selfish and they right. start to say, Well, I'm going to make decisions for the greater good, but the greater good just happens to also help me. Right. Yeah, of uh, course. Or, or help my buddies over there. Yeah. Um, and so, you have a, a, a you have a problem there, which which, um, and and the problem is that the, the the people who have that control obviously don't want to lose it. Yeah, and so they therefore create structures that either political structures, but it could be other structures as well. Yeah, financial structures. It could be you know uh, moral structures potentially. They create structures that uh, protect the collective but essentially protect their own sort of mm. control and domination and that is where i think the the key problem or the, the the key flaw in collectives is and it needs to be flagged and it needs to be a red flag and it needs to be something that is constantly um looked at because if we allow that to happen then you you run into all sorts of of problems
0: yeah, yeah that makes a lot of sense so Let me echo some of this back to you and maybe a slightly different framing to get your thoughts. So cooperation is kind of the magic of being human in a way, right? We figured out how to cooperate at a scale no other animal can. And that's why we dominate the world, basically. This is the the Yuval Harari um, thesis in his book, Sapiens, that human beings can cooperate flexibly and in large numbers in a way that no other species can. So. Said another way, cooperation is more fruitful for everyone involved. We're all better off cooperating. We actually pragmatically create more wealth. We get more done in the world. We solve more problems, however you want to say this, working in concert than we do working in isolation. So cooperation is like the holy grail of human existence. It's what increases standards of living and wealth and capital and all that. But to cooperate effectively requires rules right? We all need to play by a set of rules so that we can, we know what to expect from one another, right? That's kind of like the the channels that, that guide our action is whatever rules we're in. But in these collectives that the individuals comprise, inevitably, as you said in your video, there, there comes to be a small group of people that really are the decision makers because humans are hierarchical, right? Just like a lot of animals, we have a few dominant or persuasive people that kind of get to the top of the hierarchy and tell the rest of the hierarchy what to do to some extent. Is it accurate for me to define corruption then as those individuals in power in a hierarchy applying the rules differently, either either bending the rules for themselves, breaking the rules, circumventing the rules that all the other people in the collective hierarchy are forced to play by or expected to play by, maybe is a less strong word. Is that, in in my effort to define corruption, because that is the core problem here with the collectives, I'm trying to really get a hold of corruption itself. Is that the right way to think about it, that you have, let's call them public rules, which really just whoever's in the hierarchy, that are then bent or twisted for private gain, as in the individual's Making or applying the rules, or misapplying them. Sorry, that's a long-winded question. I hope it made sense. No, no,
1: it's it's not at all. Uh, I think it's a very important question. Uh, so, first of all, just just touching back on what you said before, cooperation is fundamental, mm-hmm. but also competition. Mm-hmm. And I don't and and I don't want to come across as sort of an airy fairy. Oh, we should right. all co- co- co-. Yes. Cooper- competition is very a very important part of human development as well. Yes. Right. So cooperation and competition, I sort of in a way they go hand in hand, yes, in, they in do. my view.
2: Yeah.
1: But there's a difference between that and control and domination. Mm-hmm. Um, and um in answer to or, or to, to sort of f- to explore the point that you were making, I don't think it's just about circumventing public law or rules. Because those laws and rules are always going to be subject to change, right? Um, like uh, Bitcoin being a, a, a very different example, but like in terms of collectives, inevitably, you're going to react to things. You are going to go, oh, well, the, the market has changed or the environment has changed and we need to, we need to adapt, right? Mm. And so you can't be rigid in saying, well, no, sorry, we set that up five years ago, you can't right. change it. So there's always going to be an adaptation and a creation of rules or or a change in direction. So I think that the idea of corruption goes a little bit more abstract than that. Mm. For me, the idea of corruption is uh, the the stagnation or prevention of flourishing. So uh, in Chinese theory and in Chinese medicine, we have this concept called qi, which you may, may have heard of.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and there's lots of different definitions of qi, right? People talk about it as the life force and all of this stuff. And it's a very difficult thing to get your head, head around and to, to even discuss. But from all of my, I've been involved in Chinese medicine for 30 years, not as a practitioner, but just just listening to people, basically. Mm. And And what I note is that Qi can mean many things but essentially it means it is the it is what happens in nature naturally is the the movement towards flourishing it's the mm-hmm. the yin and yang of entropy in other words right mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. you've got this idea of as we move forward you know uh, laws of thermodynamics mean that we we head towards entropy but also there's there's something in it built into our in, into nature which is a, a movement towards flourishing, to developing complexity, but, but enhancing and encouraging uh, life and flourishing, right? Mm. And so, and this is the problem. It's very hard to, to define that within a, a collective, but essentially what happens is that a collective's purpose should be in service to that flourishing,
2: mm-hmm.
1: in my opinion, right? Right. And so the moment that it stops being in service to that flourishing, it should splinter,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? It should either split up into different groups, mm-hmm. uh, which might make more competition and, and best wins, etc., which is, mm-hmm. you know, competition, which is good. Or it might dissolve altogether and return us back to individuals for that particular um, subject matter, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. But the moment that individuals start to, uh, move the direction um, in order to uh, achieve their own personal gain rather than the flourishing of the relationships and the, the, the social.
2: Because
1: mm-hmm. I think it's also that we sort of distinguish social from collectivism. I know that socialism is a form of collectivism, but yeah. we should try to sort of separate them. Social is this idea of relationships and, and uh, cooperation. So-,
0: so, so, so social being like the actual... 150 or less people you engage with or is collectivism exactly. being beyond exactly
1: that? again again the idea of confucianism the idea of you know the, the smaller relationships that you you may have so in my view corruption is a very difficult thing to pinpoint because it mm. can't just be about saying oh you've changed the law you changed the rule that's corrupt right it's it's got to it's got to um it's got to be decided upon Or it's got to be defined by how much it's uh preventing this flourishing Mm. of an ideal of a purpose of a function whatever the collective was set up to do Mm. and i do think that it's natural for all collectives to reach that tipping point where because you know we are fallible beings right Mm -hmm. um and so it's it's going to happen or it's it's likely to happen But it needs to be something that is, um, as I said, flagged. And it's very hard to flag it when it is a little bit abstract like that. Because it can be twisted in many different ways, as we've seen, right? Uh, Where, you know, it seems like the collective is on the surface presenting the idea that they're doing something good. But in fact, you know, there's all manner of evil going on.
0: Yeah, to an extreme, right? I'm I'm reminded here of... The Marxist credo, from each according to their ability, to each according to their need, beautiful utopian you know rapper, if you will, for the for that collective, but it perpetrated its exact opposite. Um, okay, so just I'll, just
1: I, I, just yeah. just to briefly sort of uh, add to that, I think there there are some flags that will will warn you of it, mm. right? Uh, So it it may be abstract in terms of trying to define it, but I think there are some flags, for example, dogma, Mm -hmm. right? censorship, uh, emotive propaganda, Mm -hmm. um, uh, um, demonization. Mm -hmm. These are all very clear and very easy to see if you've got your eyes even half open.
0: Maybe us versus them, the in-group-out-group thing.
1: Precisely. Uh, The uh, lack of tolerance, Mm -hmm. right? Um, extremism of of any sort of form. These are very clear markers that a collective has gone wrong. Mm -hmm. So even though it may be hard to actually pinpoint what it was that that caused the fracture, Mm -hmm. there are many signs that are very clear and have been proven throughout history uh, that you can spot. And I think that as soon as they are spotted, they should be called out.
0: Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. Um, So I want to... You make a great point. Rules have to be fluid. Otherwise, you're dogmatic, right? It's, hey, here are the rules forever. They can never change. That's not good because reality changes all the time and we have to adapt. And if you become dogmatic, then you, you interrupt that process of adaptation. But I want to be careful here because agreed rules need to be fluid but the rules in force at any snapshot point in time right whatever rules are agreed to by the collective they need to for the collective to operate optimally all of the members the individuals in the collective need to adhere to those rules and if they're not adhering to those rules and to say there's a couple of people at the top that are ignoring the rules or bending the or abdicating from the rules or abusing them or twisting them whatever they're doing to, to not follow the rules they're they're pursuing their own personal gain then at the expense of everyone else that is following the rules so what's a simple example here maybe just like pollution if we agreed that throwing trash and i know this is a whole complicated area that we get into but let's just say We all agree that dumping sewage in the water supply is a bad idea, but then there's a couple of guys at the top of that hierarchy that decide to start selling licenses for dumping sewage in the water that they pocket all the cash, right? They're bending the rules, hurting everyone else in the process, but they're bending the rules to enrich themselves. So is that then... I'm still on this point about corruption being. I agree with you. Rules need to be fluid. So I'm hoping I can separate these two things. That rules do need to be fluid and adaptable, but at any given point when they're in force, everyone needs to adhere to them. Otherwise, if they're not, oh, yeah. then it, that's that may be the way to pin down corruption. I'm no, guessing.
1: no, certainly. I mean, I, I think that the, the 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 key point here is that any changes in rules need to be agreed in public. You know, you you, you can't you can't have some rules and then in the background you you know, subverting those rules in some way. So I'm not saying that, you know, rules have to be fluid, and therefore everyone can just sort of change them up as they right, go of course, along, right, it needs to be something that is discussed and agreed upon. Hmm. Um, and that is something and, and if the collective does not agree on it, uh, or it, it raises uh, uh, concerns or flags, then that should be another uh, way of deciding whether or not the collective needs to be changed right, right? And
0: we, we call this in bitcoin a fork right where the collective is going two different directions you should just let the collective split yeah,
1: yeah exactly exactly and that's the perfect example of how i think the sort of natural way of collectives should be mm-hmm. uh and i think that the, the problem is that we have systems and, and and power structures and uh compliant media and all sorts of different Um, techniques and uh, apparatus that mean that that natural process of forking uh, doesn't necessarily happen. And in fact, um, hardly ever
0: does. Right? Yeah, no, it's, yeah. There's there's a great point there that I'll try to get to later, but I don't want to skip something else you said that was really good. Uh, Chi, chi is the, uh, I hope I'm repeating this correctly, the flourishing which happens in nature right? Like, what's the old Taoist saying that nature never rushes, yet nothing is left undone? You know, we have all this natural abundance around us, and it's just coming. I guess that's what chi is, this natural energy that's creating all this.
1: Well, the idea, I mean, I guess, the, okay, so this is my own personal take on chi. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to like say yeah. that this is the classical, because if you speak to, 10 different doctors chinese doctors or 10 different people studying classics in chinese medicine they'll give you 10 different answers right yeah. so the way that i look at it is this why do we make the assumption that evolution should tend towards flourishing and not destruction hmm. you know why, why 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 is it in that direction mm-hmm. uh, you know we sort of have this ingrained in us oh that you know the garden will grow you know right. that, that that uh, beings, organisms will become more complex uh, and will become more sentient. And we will, uh, you know, become more complex cooperative, uh, you know, uh, beings like us. Mm-hmm. We, I mean, we, uh, even the individuals, a cooperation of bacteria and, you know, all mm-hmm. the rest of it, this sort of, sort of, this idea that we head towards the flourishing of life and the continuation of life. Mm-hmm right? From the very basic, you know, single cell, even further back, you know, to the sort of atomic level, the idea, you know, why do these, why is there, you know, gravity? Why is there this movement towards this?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And on its most basic level, that's my sort of interpretation from listening to all these, you know, people for, for decades of what she is. Mm-hmm. Instead of the, the, this idea of some sort of discrete energy, which somehow floats around in your body with acupuncture, you can sort mm-hmm. of enable it. It's the idea of there is the yin and yang of entropy. It's there is this, this opposite, which defines entropy as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Which is complexity and flourishing of life. And that is uh, fundamental to natural law and fundamental to everything that, that should inform, I think the decision-making uh, the decisions that we make as individuals, the decisions that we make as one higher up relations or social, yeah. um, all the way up to sort of, you know, the the highest sort of intellectual sort of, you know, uh, um, I don't know, ledger, the intellectual ledger of mankind. Right, right. right. Yeah. So like, you know, I I, I think that that's, that's my sort of version of chi in a way. And I think that it can be applied pragmatically from a, Health perspective, as it's done in Chinese medicine, but it can be applied in, in in other ways as well.
0: Yeah, so it it's I like how you're tying this back to entropy because that's sort of what defines life in a way. Um, this is a whole rabbit hole we could go into for a long time, but I'll just leave it with this one quote. I think from I think it's from G.K. Chesterton. He said that a dead thing can go with the stream, only a living thing can swim against it so there's like there's only one force that goes against entropy in the universe, and that's life, basically. yeah, um, but this idea that we you know again, just the undisturbed natural world converts sunlight and water into plants and vegetation. I mean, I guess that that interaction is somehow driven by Chi, however you define it. And I find it interesting that humans do kind of the same thing. Like if you just leave humans alone, this is a great point that safety said in his recent interview on Lex Friedman capitalism is what happens when you leave people alone. <laughs> yeah. So it's not even, it's not a state, it's not an implementation. There's no force. There's no ideology that was planted into the soil. And then people started to follow it. It's literally self-organization, human self-organization and exchange. Yeah. All driven by exchange. Absolutely. So the question, I want to tie this back to your earlier point on flourishing, like, When the collective starts stops serving flourishing rather that's when it should split how do we measure that though because are we then back in this subjective complexity of you know your your flourishing is on how what i call flourishing is there is there a way to quantify it
1: Uh, now you're starting to move into the area of how do you how do you Quantify these ideas of like truth and you know all these. It it, it starts to become very difficult, Mm -hmm. and that's why I think that you look for the, you look for the symptoms, Mm. you know, but the symptoms are very easy to see. It's like it's like it's like a disease, right? Mm. If the symptoms develop, you can see that there's a problem. Now you might not know exactly where the problem is, right? But there's a problem, right? Now then you have a choice. Can you find the root cause of that problem? Because there's no point in symptom bashing, right? But there's no point Mm -hmm. in just trying to, you know, put a balm over, you know, the the symptom itself, put a Band-Aid over it. You need to find the the root cause of it. And inevitably, it's going to be, you know, some sort of corruption of an individual, most likely. I mean, I don't want to say that exclusively, but most likely. Yeah. So I think that the key here is that keeping your eyes open for the symptoms is very important and then try to find the root cause if you can but if you can't you also need to know when to just you know let let the fork happen right mm-hmm. um, and i think that one of the problems also is when you untether when you untether the value proposition of the collective when it when it becomes untethered um, from something that's distinct discernible measurable mm. mm-hmm. then then uh it's also more likely to just sort of uh find its way towards a corrupt state i think so uh yeah i i would i would sort of look for
0: those signs right because that when it's untethered When the purpose of the collective is untethered from an objective metric of some kind, you introduce all this opportunity for rhetoric, right? The greater good. Exactly. No matter what I do, it's for the greater good. And you know, yeah. Okay. Point well taken there. Um okay, this wasn't complicated enough. I'm gonna try to make it more complicated now. (laughs) You mentioned the corruption, (laughs) have some more tea. You mentioned the corruption of the individual. I think, is a catalyst to the forking of these collectives, maybe, right? Like a, a individual in power becomes corrupt. So that, I guess, propagates through the collective and then ultimately necessitates a split or maybe even the demise of the collective. <sighs> well, I don't know that we ever got our hands fully around corruption, but what do you mean by corruption of an individual? And the, what what I, where I'm going with this, like all cards on the table is, My view is that there's a deep relationship between, and you said this earlier, right? We are all the products of our environment. Um, There's another quote says human nature takes the shape of its container. So I always view incentives as being like the landscape. You're kind of pouring human nature onto this landscape of incentives. And I can't tell you exactly what people are going to do, but if there's something that makes people rich, I think a lot of people are going to do that thing not everyone, but a, a majority. So you can, you know, as Munger said, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome. So I'd just like to try to untangle that a bit. Do you, when you say corruption of the individual, how does that relate to corruption of the collectives as well? Is there feedback loop? Are there feedback loops between them? Or how do you view that?
1: Um, I view the corruption of the individual as well. I view that the success of a collective is reliant upon a large proportion of the individuals that make up that collective to be, um, to have their eyes open to the corruption of the collective, obviously, but Mm -hmm. also to, to, and I, I don't want to come across as sort of, you know, uh, trying to define a superior being versus an, you know, but mm-hmm. a, a sort of enlightened being versus an, an unenlightened being. But I personally think that there's a lot that we need to, to reformulate around the ideas of self value. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I mean by that, because I can, I get into trouble when I talk about this sometimes
2: mm-hmm.
1: is so value is, uh, value is, um, a, a way of, uh, it's, it's the, it's the, the drive that, that creates action. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah.
1: Um, but, it, and it, and it can be defined by the utility or worth of something,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right. Or it its ability to achieve a function, right. Uh, we can separate values from value in terms of morals and ethics, and mm-hmm. we can discuss that if you want, but, The idea is that I think that values drives society, it drives action. you Mm -hmm. talk about incentives, uh, you know, I think that they're in a way sort of a similar uh, viewpoint, Mm -hmm. but the concept of self value, I think, is a very dangerous thing. Mm. Uh, And what I mean by that is that if we, if we, if we distill that back to human beings and we say, well, if, if, in order to find the value of something, we essentially need to have two things, right? We need to have the, uh, we need to understand its primary function. And we need to have some way of measuring it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this obviously goes into money and, and, and all, all sorts mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. areas. But when you're talking about human beings, then you need to define the, the, the primary purpose of a human being. Mm. And I think that that really from, from, a, from, from my point of view and probably from a lot of sort of Eastern tradition and, and Buddhist points of view is being, mm-hmm. right? That's our primary function. And therefore we have achieved our primary function as soon as we're born, right? Mm-hmm. And so the concept of self-value I think is a bit of a, 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 a sort of a fallacy because your self-value is sort of a, a being value, right? And that's irreducible. It doesn't matter mm. even, it doesn't even matter what you do. And this is where people get a bit, oh, but I could kill mm. someone and you know, <laughs> so we you know, talk about that separately. But the idea is that from my point of view, self-value leads to all kinds of problems in the world. And I think it leads to the corruption of collectives
2: mm.
1: because self-value is, first of all, it's not tied to any function. So it could be anything. Well, what what, what defines your self-value? It's going to be changing all the time, right? Mm. How rich I am, how pretty I am, how humorous I am. This what is kind e- of house.
0: egotism? Is this related to egotism? Yeah, I mean,
1: yeah. I think that e- the egotism and self-value are, are very, very much linked. But I think yeah. self-value is what leads to egotism.
2: Gotcha. Because
1: essentially what it is, is the idea being that in order for me to value myself, I need, to, uh, and, you know, I need to float myself on the stock exchange of, you know, beings, right? Yeah. And therefore, how am I judging that? I mean, you know, is it how rich I am? Is it, you know, you know how clever I am or whatever it may be. Yeah. And so you're forced into this game of an untethered sense of value. So it's not tethered to anything. There's no way of measuring it, really. Yeah. than through comparison and through comparison and uh competition right but this is different for me because it's a competition with no winner right it's always Mm going to be it's always going to be changing you're never going to be satisfied you're always going to be on the treadmill and this sort of harks back to sort of buddhist ideas of relinquishing that reliance right Mm -hmm. that being in a state of non-reliance which is essentially the same thing as what I'm talking about. Like the, the, the act of being is enough, mm. right? Um, but when you are untethered in terms of uh, your function, in terms of d- discerning self-value and untethered from any way of measuring it, you're just bobbing around in a sea mm. of, of just unknowns, right? Mm. And the only thing that you can do is to try to assign yourself a tribe because you're like, well, how do I judge my self value? Well, do you like me? Do you like me? Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. Oh, this group, I I I feel I identify with this group. Mm -hmm. And then in order for you to prop up your own self value, you inevitably sort of uh, occupy echo boxes because you want to hear stuff Mm -hmm. that's good about yourself. Right. right? Um, And so that, Makes you susceptible to the herds of collectives, right? So it's it it comes from, in my view, it comes from. uh, So we can talk about collectives being, you know, some sort of oh, they can become corrupt. But it's the responsibility of the individual to resolve that problem, right? It's uh, and so if the if the individual is the supreme unit of moral concern, it's also the 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 premise upon which the corruption takes place right Right. so therefore you need to work on that because self-value leads to need need leads to tribalism uh need leads to all negativity. i mean if you look at it if you really sort of boil it down most negative emotions in life are are related around need right yes Uh, and, and that and there's a difference between need and want here because what we, what I'm not suggesting is that we all just sit back and go, Oh, we're beings and everything's fine. You know, and and that's going to somehow create a society of sort of lazy, inert, you know, um, I don't know, uh, you know, it's going to lead to apathy. Right. You know, because I actually don't think that that's the case. I think that if you take away the need, you free yourself to, achieve to express
2: mm-hmm.
1: to celebrate to be positive i mean if you look at it and um, you know collectivism the staunch defenders of collectivism as the supreme unit are essentially very pessimistic right <clears throat> it's the idea that you know uh, individuals shouldn't do it on that we we need we need the collective because individuals left to their own devices can't be well, trusted yeah can't be trusted <laughs> yeah. well Will create a fractured isolated society and all the rest of it so uh, you know we're talking about the corruption of the individual i think that that self-value is is a key part of that we need mm-hmm. to work on that and i think that that's one thing that is missed a lot by 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 a lot of society because we are constantly told to value ourselves mm-hmm. and i think that even though the intentions are right i think that that's a very wrong way of Uh, uh, that's the very wrong teaching. Hmm. You should say that you are already at full value. You are being done irreducible. Right now you have a short window in this world. Go have fun,
2: right? Right.
1: Play the game, celebrate, go seek out and try to achieve your wants by all means, whatever they may be becoming rich, becoming, you know, powerful, whatever that might be. But the moment it's tethered or the moment that it's somehow intrinsically uh, part of your self-worth, that's a problem. Mm, Because then you can justify doing all sorts of naughty, nasty, evil things. Right. Right. And you can justify the corruption of a collective. You can justify ring fencing power. In many ways, it's sort of synonymous with pride. Yes, you know, yes. It's this idea that it's a sort of, it's this all-encompassing uh, rationalization that, oh, you can do it. So, for example, if you're a CEO of a company and your self-worth is essentially defined in your mind by your the profits of the company, then what kind of, you know, right. you could do all sorts of, of uh poisonous things to society right because you can justify it right yes. uh, or you can justify anyway you can justify also You justify of, anything
0: because yeah. that is you you've made that you know peterson has this he has a lot of definitions for god but one of them is the highest value and a hierarchy of values so if you're that ceo and you've put profit in the top spot of your hierarchy of values again value being that which determines your action he's effectively made Profits his God, and he he'll subject anything to that, right? Subordinate right. anything to that.
1: But if you connect it to self value, then it's 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 like part of your foundational structure. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so if you fail, it breaks you,
2: mm. right?
1: right? Yeah. And this is why we've got to be careful about a, an individualistic society that doesn't have this that that also teaches this concept of self value because it's the reason why. Uh, quite rightly, you can say that individualistic societies also have high levels of depression and anxiety and people, you know, mm-hmm. because what you create is this uh, plethora of choice, right, mm-hmm. which can be debilitating. Yeah. And you create fear because, the, you know, if your self-worth is dependent upon the consequences of your pursuits,
2: mm-hmm.
1: that is what leads people to stay in bed, and not right. get out and go and do things and be creative and express themselves. So I think it's the opposite to how a lot of people would sort of maybe view it at first glance. I think that by relinquishing self-value, you actually increase ambition. You actually, mm. actually increase creativity. You actually increase innovation and you actually reduce um, the what would be broadly under the consensus of evil acts.
0: Right. Yes. No. this is all really good i lo- I like how we're talking about there's the internally conceptualized hierarchy of values that we each have, but then through our interactions and you know construction of collectives and engagement of these multiple collectives, we create a macro hierarchy of values that is civilization itself um, and I think at least in Western civilization, you know we've decided to put life liberty and property at the top of that thing you know pursuit of happiness in the united states but um really just freedom ultimately yeah now i'd like to tell you about a great new bitcoin show on the scene that you've got to check out brought to you by swan studios and bitcoin magazine this show is hard money with natalie Brunel. natalie is an emmy nominated journalist bringing unparalleled experience to the bitcoin media scene And personally, Natalie is one of my favorite voices in the Bitcoin space. Each week on Hard Money, you'll get the top headlines of the week with analysis you won't find anywhere else, hard-hitting interviews with amazing guests like myself and other top minds in the Bitcoin space, and the show will take you directly into the lives being changed by Bitcoin all over the world. Check out Hard Money at swan.com backslash hard money. Today, I want to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. So how does health insurance work? You send an egregious amount of money to an insurance company. They hold it in a pool of depreciating fiat currency. Then when you have a large health event, you have to pay them even more via your deductible, and then you hope they will cover your bill. And in fact, one in six bills are denied by healthcare.gov plans. It's time to take control of your own healthcare bills. I'd like to introduce you to CrowdHealth. It's a decentralization of healthcare, using Bitcoin as an alternative to health insurance. Instead of sending fiat currency to a big corporation, you send that money to an account controlled by you, a portion of which is converted into Bitcoin. Then, if you have a big health event, you have a community of Bitcoiners that will use the money in their accounts to help you out. To get more details, go to joincrowdhealth.com backslash breedlove, where you can find the promo code for $99 a month for six months. So this seems like maybe a good time because you did go into some of the potential downsides of individualism. Hmm. I think it'd be useful for us to talk about that. So um, I'll read a couple of things that are quoted out of your video. I hope they're quoted correctly. I, I typed it as fast as I could. The individualism of free market economies can result in self-centeredness. This is a potential downside of individualism. Another one would be without a strong collective like the state, who will take care of individuals in society when they need help and protection? And then you use this to lead up to the question you said that we have to ask, what is the primary deciding factor that determines if an individualistic society flourishes with human enlightenment or becomes fractured by human greed and selfishness? And I think that's such a, I mean, excellent posing of the question itself Um, sort of has echoes of that, like, how do we quantify human flourishing, which is not quite possible. It doesn't sound like there's always some subjectivity there. Um, And your answer was, and there's a lot more to it here, but essentially the qualities of the individuals, right? It's the individuals that are choosing to decide and what qualities to develop and whatnot. But I wanted to, to throw another element into this is that, because my answer to that question being much more economic standpoint would just be the integrity of private property. So as you've just said, leave people free to pursue whatever they want, get as rich as you want, do whatever, you know, enjoy yourself. You've got a short ride, but the limiting principle, I think that is most pragmatic and moral in that free-for-all that we've basically laid out. There has to be some limiting principle. Otherwise, you know, the guy will be like, oh, I like to eat people. So I just ate a bunch of people and, you know, that doesn't work for society. So the line or the limiting principle in my mind has to be the integrity of private property. It's like, do whatever you want. Get as rich as you want. Pursue the satisfaction of all your wants up to the point of violating anyone else's person or property. That seems to me the way to best construct a collective that is let's say free from c- corruption both internally and externally. I would just love to hear your thoughts about that.
1: Well I fundamentally agree with your, your point regarding uh, property and the sort of uh, foundational sin of theft right
2: Yeah uh, yes. whether or
1: not it's whether or not it's thieving of private property, thieving of somebody's life, thieving of yeah somebody's you know uh you know all crimes in some way are theft
0: yeah all coercion all yeah Yeah.
1: right so I agree with that um I think that um look as as humans we have a certain set of needs right and I think that it's very important that we don't overplay those needs I think that's one of the problems
2: Mm.
1: you know we need food we need shelter uh, I think we need relations. I think we need Mm -hmm. to have the freedom to have relations, which is, you know, was a problem in the last couple of years, as we know. Um, I I think that we do also need to be protected from theft.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Now theft of life, theft of property, private property. And I do think that there is a role for a state in that, even though I'm always cautious of, you know, uh, you know, uh, propping up the idea of state.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I do think that there is a, I think that if, if we made a state responsible only for the protection of, of these primary needs and nothing more, mm-hmm. right? I think that that would be a, a, an interesting experiment to run. Hmm. Right, um, because I think that, you know, uh, in many ways the uh, the state was created to protect private property. Right, you know. Yes, but it's, it's sort of that's that's the sort of that was that's what made sense about creating the state. Right. You say
0: the primary needs. What are you referring to specifically?
1: Having enough food, mm. having some shelter, being able to free, being able to be, uh, able to be freely interacting with other people. Mm. Um, and protection from theft,
0: you know? Yeah, I really strongly agree on theft. I get a little tripped up on the first two, though. If we're guaranteeing people food and shelter, that can necessitate theft. If there's not enough to go around, then governments start to ga- engage in wealth redistribution.
1: Uh, look, I, I understand that it's a, it's a uh, rocky road. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I'm, I'm 100% with you on that i do uh there's there is still part of me that still feels that having a very basic safety net for people mm-hmm. um i think is and i and i do say very basic safety th- safety net like mm-hmm. i'm not suggesting that you know we we i think that we've gone it has been become corrupted and i do I, I'm a great believer in allowing the market to, you know, sort to, it out. To sort it out. Yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, I'm I'm happy to be proven wrong. I, I can't I can't, uh, and you might be able to enlighten me on this, but I can't think of any free market economy that uh, that that
3: uh,
1: managed to succeed to protect you know everybody's intrinsic needs uh without some level of collective but maybe i'm wrong in that
0: no well you're correct i don't think there's any social or socioeconomic system that's ever eradicated poverty right it, it's just nothing has ever done that um i would also add in there when we we've never seen true free market economies right we've only seen kind of glimmers because property has always been breakable basically and every time you break property you leave free market and you go into something else um, I this is a very sticky question though because I people say this to me all the time like well without the state what about you know the homeless shelters or the welfare or this you know whatever social safety net or program is in place who's going to provide that and I don't have a great answer I mean the It seems to me like there are, well, a couple of things. One, if you take the state out of the equation, you're taking theft, you're removing a lot of theft from the system, which means more aggregate wealth creation. So even the poor among us will be way better off just by virtue of this machine creating more wealth. Even if you're at the bottom of the hierarchy, you're still going to have, you're going to benefit. Basically, there's more food supply, more innovation, medical, et cetera. But further beyond that, I know people are still going to struggle, right? People are still going to be homeless or broke or make mistakes or be addicted to drugs, whatever the thing is, how do we take care of them without the state? And this is where my answer is not great. It's like, there has to be some communal fabric, you know, That I I don't know, volunteer organizations, philanthropy. So now
1: we're going back to the idea of relationships and and social versus state. And I think that, um, you know, the idea is yeah a system let's Mm -hmm. let's take state because state is a sort of a could could be sort of a Mm -hmm. dirty word here but there has to be a a, a sort of a collective agreement Mm -hmm. on we don't let people just die in the gutter you know right
0: yeah then the at the everyone will agree to that everyone's like yeah i'm against poverty we got 100 yes everyone's against poverty but but who pays for it that's the right problem
1: so there's a difference between theft and Agreeing to contribute to a system, you know, and so, you know, you you can look at taxation and as a businessman, believe me, I I, I don't have many pretty words to talk about in terms of taxation, but, you know, like at its at its core level, the idea of communities grouping together and say, right, let's save some funds for a system of protection mm-hmm. that that is very uh, rigorously um checked for uh you know people who are abusing it right I, I i think that no no matter how individual you are no matter how much of you know uh, let the market decide personally i think that mm-hmm. that in my view that makes sense that there is some way of of grouping together cooperating to create a mm-hmm. system to, to protect people's very very basic needs but but going again one step back and back to my idea of self-value I think that the main corrupting element that drives everything above it is this idea that I talked about before because it's the self-value that creates this idea of or justification for um, states that are thieving,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, mm-hmm. and that's and that's I think if we take away, if we could not take away, you never going to take it away, but mm-hmm. if you could uh, have enough proportion of the of society um, who are um, have this uh, approach of being value is the only thing, and self value is is a is a uh, is an illusion. Mm. Then, I think you can you can achieve more uh, cooperation and in collectives. And I think collectives can uh, operate more effectively with less corruption. That's Isn't, not to say they won't become and the fork will need to happen, but it's it's at least going to be flagged up. I think is
0: another way of saying that difference between self value and being value is this like intrinsic extrinsic motivation where. You, just by virtue of being alive, you are intrinsically valuable in a way that, as you said, can't really be compromised, right? Because if all action is an expression of value, and being alive is what engages, like, if you're alive, you're engaging in action, that's what kind of the definition of it is, then you sort of have this meta value to you in a way, right? You are you're creating value just by virtue of being alive. Whereas in this self value, you're seeking extrinsic value from others. Like, do you like, me? as you said, do you like? me?
1: Yeah. Uh, Self value. uh, When I'm talking about that, I'm, I I guess what I'm talking about, I'm not talking about creating value. I'm not Mm -hmm. talking about um, uh, using value to dictate action. Mm -hmm. Right. Because, uh, but these are, as you said, extra, extra, extrinsic Mm -hmm. uh, value, you know, it's, 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 it's going after your wants. It's seeing mm. things that are valuable and trying to achieve it. Mm-hmm. The problem is when it's affecting your, when it's self-worth, tied to your you self-worth. See. right? And I think that that's really the problem. Uh, and, and that's uh,
0: so hard, personally. Like, I mean, you're a businessman. I'm sure you've had some rough roads a time or two, and I know when I've experienced failure in life, self-worth gets clobbered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's
1: precisely the work that needs to be done. And, and in a way, the, the value of failure. Mm, right. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, we talk about working on the self or, you know, a lot of people say, well, how do you work on the self? And then people talk about mindfulness and no mind and detachment and all of this stuff. But you can't achieve that unless you really focus in on this, in my view, central problem which is we all sort of somehow say, oh yeah, self-value, that's a great thing. You know, have mm-hmm. self-value, have a sense of self-worth, right? Yeah. And I think that, that in a way, that's the little hidden gremlin, mm. right? That's that, that sort of around which all sort of corruption happens and, and mm. you don't see it. You see it as something that's virtuous in a way, or it's being right. presented in a virtuous way. Make yourself feel good about yourself. Yeah. Listen, go out and enjoy yourself. Take pleasure, you know. As long as uh, you know, again, you're not thieving, or you're, you know, you're you're following your moral compass. Mm. Uh, But understand that at its core, this is a game, right? Mm -hmm. And at its core, it doesn't really matter, right? You know what I mean. Life is gonna go on, and stuff's. You're gonna die, and and this is what tea teaches in many ways. It's Mm. sort of it's this impermanence. This once -hmm. you really when you really bring that into your heart, then you can start to see the illusion of self-value
3: mm.
1: and you can tie it to egotism. I think people now sort of go, Oh yeah. Ego bad, you know? Yeah. But not enough people sort of take one step further back and go, no, mm. what creates ego is this sense of self-value and self-worth. Like right. we'll, and in a way that's what religion previously gave to us. You know, we're all equal in the eyes of God. Yeah right
0: yeah yeah, and
1: and that's something that when we stripped uh religion out of sort of you know i don't know like you know it's obviously not gone but you know when once it it, once the the sort of paradigm moved towards objectivism materialism whatever it might be we took away that fundamental thing that i think is is fundamental to a good society which is Relinquish your, leave your pride at the door, forget self-worth. We're all equal. This is just a game. Let's just have fun. We can cooperate. We can compete. We can involve, we can engage in the game, Um, but we don't need, we we are taking away, we're detaching ourselves from that reliance because that need and reliance leads to anxiety, depression,
0: the fear, uh,
1: fear, captivity, all of those, you know, you could throw them all together in one you know bucket all come from attachment and that attachment all comes from this idea of self-worth
0: yeah it's i'm reminded of that song all we are is dust in the wind (laughs) you know it's like it really is ephemeral and fast and you just got to enjoy it but we do have this enterprise where we have to cooperate to improve living standards for everyone so you need rules we need a collective moral compass i guess and that's what we've been kind of fighting about all, well, you know what is the correct proper moral compass um right and you know figures like christ or like buddha they kind of are supposed to be the archetypes of that compass right like live like they lived um well, I mean,
1: I, I would, I mean, I would sort of take a Taoist approach to that and say, mm. <clears throat> look at the morals of nature, huh. right? You know, take that, you, you've got different levels, right? You've got the sort of natural world, and you've got the individual, mm. and then the individual leads to relationships. Um, and eventually those relationships become collectives but that's sort of a sidearm and then you then you move to sort of intellect right so Mm -hmm. in in a way uh everything every action in a way is a moral like is a moral action in in its most discrete form right um and every action in nature is a moral action Mm. you've got this yin yang that we talked about of the chi and the flourishing versus entropy and there's constant dynamic interplay between the two Mm-hmm. um when it comes to morals i think that it's it maybe very old-fashioned but like I, I still like the idea of do unto others as you would want to do unto yourself mm-hmm. right i think that that is a pretty unbreakable you know way to, yeah. to guide your ethics yeah you know and i think that we have become confused by this idea um perpet- uh, you know proposed by some people that you should do unto others as they would want you to do unto them
2: <laughs> right?
1: which is a very different different yeah. thing and requires you to separate yourself from yourself right yeah. which is an impossible thing to do and leads to all sorts of problems and that's why we're scrambling around to try and figure out where our foundations of ethics are
0: yeah.
1: right but if we go back to the basics and go let's work on the idea you, you know whether or not you're religious and you believe in an absolute goodness and divine law mm-hmm. Or not—it's sort of irrelevant. The idea being that do unto others as you would want to do unto uh, as you would want to have uh, done unto you—that um, ethical way of looking at the world—that is a pretty good moral compass, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think that you could pretty much, you know, live your life with that and 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 be under the consensus of a good person, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I think that it, in many ways talking about that, that idea of self value, that uh, can, the, the need for self worth can overtake that ethical compass very easily, I think, because it's yeah. so, as I said, it's so intrinsic to your emotional state, yeah. right? Um, and so, and, and the most successful people in the world are people that are less concerned about outcome and just more con- concerned about doing. Right. Right. Yeah. They're, 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 and they 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 take their failures on the chin and they get up and move on. Right. But essentially, they un, they sort of have a more um, light way of 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 playing the game of life. Right. Yeah. And the people that are so concerned about their self-worth, you can see it. You you know, it's, it's yep. visible in yep. people's body language. They're so nervous about what people think about them, or about whether or not they're going to succeed or fail, etc.
2: Right. Uh,
1: that leads them to such a fragile sort of emotional and mental state that uh, the overcoming of that, even temporarily, somehow supersedes ethics. Um, and that's where I think you you know you do have a problem with with uh, with morals.
0: Yeah, it, I mean, a lot of things you said there reminded me of. I think a lot of states today seek to keep people in that mode. If you can keep people scared and flight or fight mode, then they're not, they're not going to engage higher order reasoning to deal with reality. They're just going to react. Right. And if, and if you're in a, if you're a person or persons in a position of power and you just want to move people like chess pieces, then that's the mode you want them in. Um, I'm reminded too, that there's the old Rothbard quote that, to be moral and act must be free because you can't coerce a moral action I mean, that doesn't even make sense um so i mean for me i don't it, it just seems like freedom is at the basis of human morality but you make a great question with the one about like the more the morality of nature and it's all darwinian you know everything we're talking about here is darwinian but the difference with humans is that we have this again higher order ability to reason so, we can step outside of ourselves, self reflect, decide what the best course of action is, and then implement that course into our social fabric, which it seems like we've been trying to do for a long time. We've had some pretty good success. Like, we have whatever we're going into the digital age now. I mean, that's something that's a lot more than any other animal's done. No, I'm
1: here. so, I mean, you know, this is the thing. Like I said before, I think that in many ways, people <clears throat> who hang on to the sort of crutch of collectivism um as the sort of supreme unit are very pessimistic about human mm-hmm. nature I, i'm very optimistic about humans um, i think that you know I, I think that it is you know it is remarkable what we've achieved yep. through exchange through communication through mm-hmm. the ability to store uh, information and make it more efficient and mm-hmm. you know communicate that through generations i think that um the The problem is that this idea of self worth uh, is manipulated, and it's not just by the state, but it's also mm. by marketeers, mm. right? The idea that you need to buy something in order to feel good about yourself.
0: Oh, right, 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 right.
1: Yeah. You're worth it.
0: Right, that yeah, kind of right. thing, right? This is like, a, yeah, that, the extrinsic validation thing again.
1: Right. And so, and so that's where we have to be very, very careful, because I, I think that that, as I've banged on and on about, is the, mm. the bedrock of, of corruption and, and the bedrock of, of uh, this, um, this stagnation of flourishing.
0: And presumably this is what religion or wisdom traditions provided us was a bulwark against that. It's like, you don't need to buy the new thing to be valuable or worthwhile. You, you are right now. You can add to that. If if that, if that satisfies your wants, great, but it's not going to, it's not going to augment or modify your self-worth. Precisely. And that's where
1: we've got to, you know, we've got to be so careful, you know, uh, about, uh, you know, throwing away all of these valuable lessons that religion mm. teaches us.
0: Yeah, agreed with that. Um, just as a, a quick aside, you keep, you've said this a few times now, you talk about the inorganic level going into biological individuals, into the social level, and then into the intellectual level. I really think you would enjoy the book Leela. I don't know if you've heard of this book. It's written by Robert Persig.
1: Oh, he, he
0: yeah, he wrote Zen in the of Motorcycle Maintenance. 15 years later, he wrote Leela. Okay. Uh, I have an entire series about this on my channel called the My Kill series, but I think you'd really enjoy the book. It is it's better than Zen, and Zen's pretty damn good. I don't know if you read yeah. it, but um anyways. I'll, just I'll, I'll,
1: I'll I'll check it out for sure. Yeah, for
0: sure. So we should probably beat up on collectivism a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um so collectivism. Puts the supremacy of the group above the individual. Yeah. Uh, Collective goals then are held to be superordinate to individual goals. Basically, this is an inversion of individualism, but with a little caveat here that, as we said earlier, you know, groups don't really have goals, collectives don't really have plans or intentions or any of these things that we individuals do. But when we start to think, In terms of collectives, we start to ascribe those qualities. You know, this is anthropomorphizing. I think the collectives, and that leads to some really dangerous stuff because now people in position of power can again engage in rhetoric. Right? You know, what there's. um, I think I heard this from Graham Hancock, quoting some old poet. Was called the old lie that it's a glory to die for your country. You know it's those yeah. types of um, yeah. framings are possible once you start to mistake the collective for the individual.
1: Yeah well it's the idea that um, benevolence is somehow equal to sacrifice. To, mm, to yes, sort of right, becoming right. a sacrificial lamb yeah. uh, is benevolent.
0: And, and Ayn Rand beats up on that a lot too. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah yeah.
1: Um, and also the I mean, there's there's a, a lot of problems with with corrupt collectives. Obviously, you've got the ontological problem of, you know, mm-hmm. this sort of fallacy of concreteness. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, it's not it's not a real thing. I mean, look, you can you can real is a is difficult one to, you know, it, mm-hmm. if it's a concept, it could be considered to be. Uh, you know, it, it, it's like a brand, right? It's like yeah. it's like my brand, Mayleaf, right? It's like it's real in the sense that it it has an interaction with individuals, yes. right? That it that it, but it's not real in terms of its concreteness. It's got no physical location or you know dimension. Yeah. Um. So you've got that problem. You've got the problem, as you've said, of the purpose or the function of the mm-hmm. collective. Mm-hmm. Very rarely maybe when it starts is this idea of the collective good Mm -hmm. but that's a very difficult thing to define Um, it's continuously shifting and I think you're on very um, shaky uh, ground if you're going to say well uh, majority wins Mm
2: -hmm. yes
1: you know it's like well 51% says X so screw the 49% right Right. I, I don't think that that's I think that's such a weird sort of Um, black and white way of looking at, at how you make decisions. Uh, It's certainly isn't nuanced.
0: You had this great quote in your video, sorry to interrupt. You said, is it morally justifiable to punish 49% of the population for the benefit of 51%? Yeah, pretty obvious that that. I mean, unless you're, I think most people would agree that that's not justifiable.
1: (laughs) And yet that sort of is, is sort of one of the uh, sort of
0: Current model. benchmarks
1: of of the model of democracy right yeah. <clears throat> yeah. um or, or or the election of this uh, of who's going to lead us yeah uh so yeah you've got lots of problems there i mean obviously as we talked about the problem of the individual taking control or in a small group of individuals taking control and then starting to hide the way that they're doing that Creating new laws, ring fencing their power, mm. creating faceless organizations is another mm. beautiful technique um, where you uh, get this, uh, as uh, Hannah Arendt said, you know the the, the tyranny with no tyrant,
0: right? right?
1: The, this sort of faceless organization, the computer says no sort of model where it's just like, yeah. and that's something that we are having to deal with more and more and more. I mean, it just seems to be just amplified to such an extreme now where it's just like, but well, I can't do that. Oh, because, oh, I don't know. You know, right. you, you try yeah. and call a helpline and they go, I don't know. It just says, no. And you're yeah. like, come on people. Yeah. Like, yeah. You have to take back control of things. Also by definition, collectives all have different functions or different uh, purposes. And you're going to have lots of collectives coexisting.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: that will all have different purposes and therefore will there's going to be natural, this competition between these collectives, Mm -hmm. right? Right. And so it sort of uh, creates a a combative environment in a way, right? Um, And the the individuals within those collectives are in a way forced to decide which tribe they are going to go with, Mm -hmm. right? Because you might have lots of different values when you should. You should have lots of different opinions as a human being, right? Mm -hmm. You should be taking them from all sorts of tribes, you know, across all sorts of sort of uh, traditional political spectrum ideas, which I think are a bit sort of woolly and, and unnecessary these days, but mm-hmm. you, you know, you, you should have lots of opinions. And yet this sort of collective structure sort of in a way forces you to say, well, we're, com- we're, we're competing either directly or indirectly for attention, for your attention. Right. Yes. So therefore, which one are you going to pick right and so right. It, it sort of forces you into a more uh isolationist echo box of you know of a tribal sort of uh, way of thinking which then engenders or, or promotes dogma yeah uh, promotes herd mentality in order to protect the individuals in power um and then propped up with as we've said before you know communication be that propaganda or emotive you know, uh, communication, usually in the form of fear. Um, and then you create this sort of demonization, all of these flags that we talked about before, but uh, there's a lot that the, there's a lot that can go wrong with the collective. And the key thing here is that when a collective goes wrong, the impact on individuals is far greater
0: right. yes.
1: than an individual that goes that, that, that becomes corrupted in some right. way, whatever that may mean. And so the dangers are much bigger. And so as the, as the collectives grow and become global collectives, then you've got major potential for huge uh, you know, um, problems in, in the world if, if it's not handled correctly.
0: Yeah, so if anything, we need to design systems where these collectives can, as we said earlier, fork or fragment and die, right? They need to be able to die, the individuals and capital that are held in that collective can then go elsewhere be put to other uses um, or engage in other activities in the case of individuals anything that we do to inhibit that process you're kind of interrupting the process of evolution itself right exactly exactly um, yeah. and in, you know in the world of modern macroeconomics we would call these zombie companies these are the companies that produce losses so they're not solving any problem in the world profitably. And they're subsidized by theft, right? Where the government steals from taxpayers and keeps this company alive. So they're inner that that is really dangerous because now those collectives not only are they producing again, not satisfying any wants profitably, but they're also growing. And then when they inevitably do collapse, it's that much more catastrophic. Had it Versus the way it would have been had they been allowed to die naturally earlier on when they're smaller. It is exactly as
1: you said, it's anti-evolutionary, it's anti-flourishing. And that's the the huge danger because, you know, in a sort of individual or small community level, nature can absorb that, you know, or human society, the evolution of human society can absorb that. Because it's in a way natural,
2: right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um,
1: but once it's become these this sort of artifice, these global artifices of mm. you know, then that are being propped up, and just being through theft,
2: yes.
1: being propped up, that's, that that uh, are running at a loss or are, yeah. are are preventing the flourishing through you know holding on to their power. I mean, this is why, you know, there's, I think this, this sort of uh, that funny feeling of, you know, that we're on the brink of something, you know, which, which could be an egotistical thing because, you know, we all like to think that we live in a lifetime of the huge paradigm shifts, but it certainly feels very Mm -hmm. much like there needs to be a rebalancing here. The evolution needs to take over or the, the natural, the natural order or natural laws need to start to, 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 to to uh, be expressed
0: more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you've, you've got this great quote near here from Mises. Um, he said that society does not exist apart from the thoughts and actions of people. It does not have, quote unquote, interest and does not aim at anything. The same is valid for all other collectives. And I'm just struck, uh, you know, even really, really smart people. I'm thinking of the macro a lot of these macro thinkers, they're macro economic analysts. they're always talking in terms of these collectives, what China is going to do, what Russia is going to do, what this group is going to do. But it's just not a proper level of analysis. I mean, I know it's again, it's a useful fiction. We can't think at the individual level all the time. There's too many individuals, mm-hmm. too many relations. But if you, again, start to substitute that representation for reality in your mental model, you get really confused. Um, and it just seems like it opens up the door to a lot of evil, because even you were describing earlier that these different collectives are competing, which they are, but it's really the individuals controlling those collectives that are competing with other individuals controlling collectives for whatever it is they're competing over, right? More wealth or territory or resources, whatever it may be. Um, Man, just so confusing. It's like but I think
1: <laughs> that that the that, that the your last point is the is the crucial one. Whatever they are competing over for. Mm. Because here's the thing, it's like if they are, you know, if they are genuinely competing over the function that was set out by the collective at its inception, mm-hmm. then that's one thing. Uh it could still lead to a splintering or whatever it might be, you know, but that's natural competition. I'm not necessarily against that. It's when they are, when their purpose is to uh, prop up their own individual power, Mm self-worth, whatever it might be. Right. That's when we've got the problem. Right. So, when they're they're
0: leveraging the collective to prop up their own individual aims exactly yeah
1: that's exactly where that's exactly where it should by definition the collective has now stopped
0: Mm -hmm. right right
1: right that's that's where it should be like okay now that's it right because that's happened or there needs to be a huge shift in in the structure or there needs to be change there needs to be some change um and so i think that it's 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 fine for the for, for there to be competition, and in many ways, I don't think it's a problem um, on a you know on a fundamental basis for the collective to become larger and even maybe become global. Even though there's mm-hmm. a sort of you know there's concerns around the level of control that they may have, but the fundamental problem is when it's overtaken by individual needs that trump the ethics of the collective
0: right that's the corruption
1: that's the corruption yeah that's where that's where the the the, the alarm bells should be ringing uh, at full volume especially if they're large collectives
0: yeah and, and we see
1: this all the time i mean you know <clears throat> you just have to to scratch the surface of any sort of you know collective uh, especially sort of global especially huge industry collective with lots of lobbying etc cetera, etc cetera. i mean i've been involved in uh, the politics of medicine for, for near on 30 years. I have sat through meetings that would make your, you know, toes curl in terms of the lack of logic and yeah. sense. But I have sat with decision makers in government around healthcare.
2: Yeah.
1: They have looked me straight in the eye and said, we can't talk about health and food. They are not related. <laughs> My God. Because the definition of food is that it doesn't have a pharmacological effect and it can't cause harm, hmm. and I'm literally in the room looking for the hidden camera, right? Because I'm I'm just going. This how are you in charge of healthcare? I mean, how is this possible? And so wow. you you know and so it's it's actually not that easy. It's not that hard to spot this this this, this madness that's going yeah. on it's just you you know you need to have your eyes open to it and there needs to be a system that that goes on in full alarm mode mm-hmm. and this is where we really are reliant on our media and they have failed us
2: mm-hmm.
1: right um it's for the most part right because that is th- these are the necessary checks and balances that need to happen right when there's yeah. such a level of uh, of nonsense, you know, that's mm-hmm. going on, at the highest levels of decision making, it needs to be called out, it needs to be exposed.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a, yeah. how far we have drifted from the, it's the Hippocratic oath, right? Let food be thy medicine. <laughs> Crazy. So you make this other great point too, in the video that the collectives are by nature exclusionary. Obviously you're either in or you're out, you're a member or you're not, but they also have this weird effect where as they grow, the decision-making power is naturally concentrated into proportionally fewer individuals. So whatever, if you're one CEO and you're leading a business of 10,000 people versus a business of a million people, obviously that, that power is more concentrated. And then as we said, the corruption sort of occurs when that individual or individuals start to put their own um, whatever benefit above the purpose of the the collective. It kind of stops being a collective at that point. Is this then, I often talk about Bitcoin, which we just mentioned here, I think that it is the first thing we've made where you can't really do that. You can't, twist the rules of bitcoin in any way to advantage yourself and i think it's, it's the, to my knowledge the only thing you have ever created like that so yeah. is there a relationship then between the un i guess i'll say unbreakable rules here but i i still agree with you on the fluidity of rules and bitcoin can update things but there's a social cohesion on you know no more than 21 million all these other consensus rules is there some relation between the, let's say, the fixity of those rules and incorruptibility itself, both internally and externally?
1: Well, we talked about before the idea of value being tethered, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and the untethering of value of the collective is, you know, means that it's subject to uh, individual corruption, right? Because you can go, well, now the value of this, the value function of this collective is to to keep me in power or to, to buy me a new home or whatever it might be, right? Mm-hmm. Or to, to prop up my self-worth. The amazing thing, the wonderful thing about uh, uh, Bitcoin is it's tethered, mm-hmm. like 21 million, that's it. It's, it's completely measurable and it's uncorruptible. Uh, as far as I know, I'm not a Bitcoin expert, but you know, it, it, it seems to be the first thing that I can think of that has uh, that you can have trust in,
2: mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Which is fundamental, right, to to economy, right? Yeah. Uh, confidence and trust, because of the fact that you can't mess with it. Yeah, you know the rules have been set, uh, and so yeah, it is it is a remarkable and, and quite beautiful uh, thing.
0: Yeah, there's just no opportunity because there's no individual in charge, right? Or individuals in charge. So no, there's no opportunity for said individuals, hypothetical individuals that would be in charge, to put their own interests above the collective network's interests.
1: Yeah, it's like collective 2.0, right? (laughs) Yeah,
0: right, right.
1: (laughs) You know, it's like you know, it's 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 collective, but there's the ideal.
0: Is it the ideal collective because it's premised on the sovereignty of the individual?
1: Well, I think that you've got to um, my concern about saying that is that you've taken I mean, again, I don't know enough about Bitcoin mm. to know how fluid it is in terms of being able to adapt. Right. Mm. But from my understanding of it, it is that, you know, my concern would be that it serves a, an excellent function from a sort of value point of view in terms of a, 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 a means of exchange, mm-hmm. right? But is it adaptable or is, is, is that concept, the Bitcoin concept, uh, portable to mm-hmm. other collectives? I'm not sure, but I would say that it does seem to be uh, an excellent experiment to try <laughs> yeah you know because i think that it's quite clear that 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 would be something that we should be exploring um at full pelt uh, yes. because uh, you know the idea of a decentralized collective that that's that's incorruptible i mean it seems like the holy grail but i wouldn't i wouldn't right. you know i wouldn't presume to say that it's it's uh it would suit every situation
0: so interesting you know it, yeah many of the Many of the problems we've highlighted here, I think it bridges them somehow, or it, it finds a balance. I don't, clearly nothing's perfect, but it is interesting. I like that term you use. Um, what'd you say? decentralized, Incorruptible decentralized collective? Yeah. I might tweet that. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. I want to talk a bit about, because you kind of complete the video going into this work on the self and I think you have a game too, the states of self game I think that's what it's called we did it's taken yeah.
1: offline every Christmas every like end of year I tried to come up with some uh, game for, okay. for the tea community to follow yeah
0: well I really liked the the rant you went on at the end and I'll throw out a few points you said here I'm not going to quote necessarily but I'll just kind of paraphrase you're saying that life essentially is a journey of the self that we're all born innocent but then our innocence inevitably meets experience, right? We, we hit the real world, so to speak. And um, the experiences are rarely under our control, but our responses to them are. And I love this because I, heard, I had the word responsibility unpacked for me once, and it is response-ability. Your ability to respond this is actually the well, one of the most essential things in life is that none of it's under your control. I mean, we, we could argue about that. Maybe there's a little bit that is. But yeah. for the most Tiny. part, yeah. I'll go ahead and use the collective useful fiction of none of it is <laughs> under your control. But you do have this. And I got this from, uh, you know, Victor Frankl Man Search for Meaning. He calls it the final human freedom. That you, there's always that gap between your external circumstances and your, your chosen response. You get to choose how to respond. And the way I've, here's like the rough um, description I've tried to use to help bring this point home. If a meteor strikes the earth, you and I are on a nice Sunday stroll and we see a meteor, a big one, like out of the movie, deep impact or whatever fall in front of our eyes and we see a giant explosion, the quicker we can move from despair or, oh, you know, woe is me, a meteor just hit the earth, the quicker I can move from that state of what I would call is irresponsible. You're basically, you've chosen how to respond, but it's not a productive response. The quicker I can choose to respond effectively with competence to take action to start resolving the problem the better off I am and the better off the entire world is and the same for you and the same for everyone else so another way of saying that is like the more response dash ability we take the better off the world full stop so and and so and, and another thing I've heard put is that you can only really control your effort and your attitude so i would just like to hear your thinking on this the the profundity of responsibility and then the importance of controlling our effort and our attitude and how that i guess helps us and helps the world in the process
1: i think it's the fundamental interface isn't it uh you know there's life life happens you're you're going to have things um uh all sorts of experiences as you said most of which are not under your control uh how you frame it um is is really all that matters you know and the the states of self game was an exploration into sort of the dual tracks that you could take and you've seen you know there's like memes of do you want to sit on the, the, the look out the train on the, you know, the sunny side, or you're going to stare at, at the, uh, you know, a, a brick wall, you know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it's sort of like, it, it comes down to, are you going to be um, in harmony with the flourishing of life? Are you going to be a, a positive influence to yourself or to others, mm. or are you going to descend? Um, and And so the states of self, the idea was, you know, innocence is the starting point, and then that leads to discovery, but it could also lead to insecurity, insecurity Mm -hmm. would lead to conformity, conformity would lead to uh, um, uh, ego and need and all of those things that we've talked Mm -hmm. about before. Um, Also, I think it's interesting because I'm trying to uh, explore this relationship with responsibility, and I like that split, Mm -hmm. with health. Hmm. Because uh health is an ability. It's not a state. I mean, we think about health as like a state free of disease. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: But it that's a very static way of looking at health. And it's very actually, you know, it's it's not accurate because nobody is right mm-hmm. free of disease. Right. Nobody's right. it's a very black and white um sort of dualistic way of looking at things. It's that's not the case. It's very static. Health is a dynamic thing, right?
2: Yeah.
1: And in the same way that stuff's going to happen to you, right? And you, health, essentially, the definition of my definition of health is what's your ability mm-hmm. to respond to those external influences? It might be it gets cold outside, right? Mm-hmm. Or it might be something more extreme. You might get hit by a bus, right? Mm-hmm. But what is your ability to respond to that? Mm-hmm. Um, and the response... Is not just about does it extend your life? Because I think that that's also short sighted. It's also about how happy does it make you? Mm. Because ultimately, happiness is the pursuit of, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: is our pursuit, right? Right. Yeah. Um, And so if you sort of uh, look at sort of a a dividing line of like length of life on the y axis and happiness on the x axis, and you get like a a cross where you get negative and positive. you want, like, stuff's going to happen to you. You want to try to make it so that you hit that top right quadrant, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're, 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 the impact on your life expectancy doesn't decrease or, you know, increases, hopefully, like mm-hmm. if you're doing great things, but also, but essentially stays neutral is also good.
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: also your movement towards a happier state is also, uh, is also um, uh, something that you're trying to achieve. And the way to do that. by moving the axes it's not by like some you know you've got to train yourself Hmm. to make that space bigger
0: Mm. the framing what i mean the framing yeah Yeah.
1: so you've got to move the axis that's the key and that's what the key to health care should be it's what the key to mental health should be Mm. it's what the key to i think a lot of philosophical and religious teachings or any teaching should be how do you move the axes because you're not going to necessarily be able to change or you're hardly going to be able to change the events right to some extent you will but you know it's about moving the axes and I think that that's the key not just in terms of you know sort of your way of dealing with events in terms of your mental or emotional state and how that drives you forward but also in terms of your health and I think that health in many ways, you could throw that together because there's no point in leading a healthy life if you're miserable, right?
0: Right, you can, right.
1: To, you can live to 200, but like, you know, not experience any happiness. I don't think that that's the right way. That's not a definition of health for me, yeah. right? So, so it's interesting because this is an area that I'm sort of trying to, to evaluate and touch upon now with, with, with work that I'm doing is how do we define a healthcare system that looks at responsibility Yes. Um, in order to achieve a healthier society. And I think that that your point is exactly the right point. It's about how we can improve our ability to respond um, yes. and move the axis accordingly.
0: That's great. I mean, that fits perfectly with your description of, you know, health is not static, black or white, healthy, not healthy. It's an ongoing, dynamical process, you know, we're being attacked all the time. And it's, how effective is our body at responding to those threats and dealing with them. Um, and yeah, it's all, you know, that's it. That's, that's maybe a key point too is just, it's all dynamic. We're talking in little static snippets and static collectives and all these things to try and map it, but it's all, it's, the it's map is never the territory, right?
1: <laughs> it's always movement. And that's, I, I, I would say is probably one of the, the sort of key I don't want to. Uh, this uh, this is probably very broad, but one of the key sort of differences in the way of looking at the world, uh, and that and both have pragmatic purpose, right? Mm-hmm. So it's fine to look at things in a static way. It's fine to yep. look at things in, in a in a very detailed, isolated way because that if it serves a purpose, it serves a purpose.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But understanding this the, the, this uh, overarching. A dynamic quality is one of the things that I think tea teaches. It's mm. also one of the things that is sort of uh, baked into sort of Eastern ideas mm. to some extent, even though, you know, there's a lot of Western philosophy that adopts this as well. Um, but it, it is central to uh, also Chinese medicine, this idea mm. of dynamic, this dynamically, shifting state of the body and, and, and what what you're trying to do as a doctor or as a it, it extends outside of medicine mm-hmm. is allow the natural chi
3: mm-hmm. of
1: flourishing to find that balance allow that dynamic shift to happen the moment you try to fix it you're in trouble mm-hmm. Um, and this goes back to exactly the same arguments or discussions that we're talking about: collective versus individual yes. self-worth, etc. It's and it, beneath the individual, you talked about inorganic, or, or mm-hmm. I, I think, but like, yeah, is that the natural law? It's that natural this this evolution, this mm-hmm. idea of this idea of flourishing, this idea of isness. I mean, we talked about before, like, why do we assume that evolution is always going to be moving? in the direction of complexity and, and uh, flourishing. I would also pose the question, why do we assume the default state is nothing? You have like mm. a, you have this, th- this sort of argument, why is there something rather than nothing? Well, why is there, wh- why is it that way round? Why is the question framed in that way,
2: hmm.
1: you know? right? Like the something, the isness mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: is to my mind, The default state
2: Hmm.
1: right this uh, yin yang between entropy and flourishing between uh, you know static and dynamic
2: Mm -hmm.
1: between all of these things that is the default state we must allow that to happen right and the, the more we uh obstruct that and as humans we have become so good at you know, are one of the the problems with the development of humanity is we have become very very skilled, yeah. um, and we and as soon as we obstruct that those default states and that that process, then we were run right into trouble, be that healthcare or the health of society.
0: Yeah, again, such a sticky situation because some human interventions are innovations that really improve life and whatever but many i would say most human interventions are not they do not achieve their intended result let's just say that um so we're in this situation where we need to experiment with different things but we also have to have a lot of humility and accept when something is not achieving its its intended result and let it die Um, and also
1: fundamentally understand that the end goal of whatever innovations we have <clears throat> cannot be at odds with flourishing. Flourishing. Yes. This is not an anti-technology discussion. Right. 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 I mean, it's this is not about uh, anti-innovation.
0: No.
1: This is yes. about simply understanding that that innovation needs to be in harmony with with chi.
2: Yes.
0: For for yes.
1: one of a better word. Yes. You know, and and uh, and that's really sort of the fundamental um, uh, determinant of whether or not that intervention is constructive.
0: Yeah, no, it's excellently said. Um, right, I'll finish with this. It's getting towards the end of your video here, but you, you make this point that so coming from this perspective of, I guess we could say, dynamic discovery, right? that this opens you up to embrace novelty, whereas the alternative would be from the perspective of insecurity, we're going to be scared of novelty, right? And there is a balance here, again, It's you know, in nature, you can't just run naked into the hornet's nest, right? You got to have some caution. You got to, the ego is necessary, right? To protect you from death, but it can also inhibit you. So and in that state of insecurity, you're more likely, as you said, to seek the safety of conformity. And that's where I think people that are in, in the fight or flight mode, they're more vulnerable to ideological possession, right? They're more susceptible to it. But if you can stay in the dynamic mode of discovery, then you can get to presence, right? Which is just the realization, maybe like that final human freedom that you're always here, you're always, you're being again, The world's happening, you're having experience, and you come from a dynamic place of an ability to respond, I guess. That's what liberates us from worldly worries, as you say, and then in this state of presence, we achieve freedom. I agree with you on all of that. What I'd like to propose is that, so this idea of saying of liberating us from worldly worries That's what gives us this freedom to be, I don't know, more in a more dynamically secure position, something like that. And this is where property, too, is super important, because if you can hold, if I can go into the world and work, create value and own that value, and I know I can own that value independent of the actions or opinions of others, then I'm also elevating myself from worldly worries. So. And you probably know where I'm going with this, which the integrity of private property again being so closely connected to our ability to achieve presence and liberation and freedom. Um, and we, you know, we always say private property rights, but the flip side of every right is responsibility too. Like if you have a right to three hot meals a day, well, then it's someone's responsibility to cook those up. So I just wanted to explore the connection between this idea of achieving presence, liberating us from worldly worries, and getting us to freedom, but also the implementation maybe of that principle, being and private property itself. They seem very closely related to me. I just wanted to hear what you think about it.
1: Uh, it's an interesting point that I haven't really thought about, but <clears throat> because you know the the sort of classical approach of presence is present you know being uh, it's again the being value right mm-hmm. the idea of just be um, and and have that that sacred present moment where the all of the negativities that are generally well always associated with either the past or the future melt away
0: mm-hmm. and have
1: that presence and that leads to, as, as we said, leads to a, a freedom, right? I think that it certainly is the case, to my mind at least, that that, that what would hinder that state, right? What, what would prevent you from that state? Mm. Um, so then you talk about what worldly worry mm. would you have that would inhibit your ability to be in that state of presence. And I would certainly say that the idea of not being able to protect private property would be one of those, Uh one of those um, uh, would be a main issue that would hinder you from that state. It doesn't necessarily mean that you need lots of stuff in order for you to be present. You can have very little stuff, but if you're, if you're, stuff is under threat, or if the, if your private property, and that could, again, we could talk about property being something, not just things, right? Mm-hmm. It could be, you know, your, uh, you know, your, your life or whatever it well, might be. Well, your body
0: but, too, as you were saying yeah, earlier exactly. about health, you own your body. So, exactly, yeah.
1: exactly, precisely, which is a, a very important point these days. But the, yeah, so I, I, I agree with you that presence is very heavily hindered by the threat of private property being Mm. or or, or if that if if the if the the sanctity of private property isn't protected
3: Mm -hmm.
1: then that would be a hindrance to presence
0: for sure yes yeah yeah Yeah, and then i'm sorry this is just coming to me too when you describe the guy getting hit by the bus a lot of your ability to respond to that situation is going to be in relation to your property, right? How much wealth do you have to now go to the <laughs> hospital and get put back together and all of this? So, um, well, yeah. So,
1: health—it it gives or, you that
0: dynamism, right? If you can yeah. preserve property across time, I have more options no matter what happens. No, absolutely. So,
1: yeah. I mean, we can't be naive to the 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 the, the importance of of, of that, mm. um, and and the and the sense of freedom that it, it can bring. But mm. I do think we have to be wary of. Inextricably linking the idea of richness or wealth, yes, with presence and freedom.
0: For sure, it's not the richest guy in the world is the most present or free. Right,
1: and we know that the richest yeah. guys in the world are also Definitely tend aren't. to be yeah. the most happiest guys in the yeah.
0: world. As well. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's an excellent point. Again, as you said, don't, you know, in the hierarchy of value, we have to be careful not to put that, although it's pragmatically necessary. In many cases, to achieve present, maybe not necessary, just useful, right? You could still get hit by the bus and just be meditating through the whole thing and not worried about it, maybe. But um, for most of us, we need recourse to property to deal with situations. Absolutely. Um, but to never put that above just being itself, right? You are a whole yeah. in and of yourself.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Don, I really enjoyed this conversation. So did I. This is really good. I think we could do this. Again, probably do it a lot too. Um, I will definitely be checking out more of your videos. Um, If there's any, you can point me to, or actually if you want to mention any of them now for the audience, you know, let them know where they can find out more about you and then maybe point them to a couple of videos.
1: Yeah. I mean, you can just head to the Mayleaf channel. It's 90% me tasting teas and talking about teas and exploring (laughs) teas. So if that piques your fancy, then please do, uh, you know, engage and, you know, see if you want to get involved in, in the tea community, but I, I, last year I did a video about truth. Uh, the pre previous year, I did a a video about, uh, the value of value talking about self value. Mm -hmm. Um, I've also done some videos about, you know, uh, exploring consciousness and happiness. So yeah, you can go, just go search May leaf, M E I leaf, and then type in like truth or consciousness or value and you should, stuff should pop up.
0: Awesome. Well, Don, thank you so much. Really appreciate you coming on.
1: It's an absolute pleasure, Robert, and thank you for having me.